Hello and welcome to episode four of Logicast, uh, the podcast brought to you by Logicata, where we take a deep dive into the previous week's AWS news. I'm Carl Robinson and I'm joined by my colleague John. Hello John, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm alright. I'm in a different shed today. Tour of the World Sheds, uh, <laughs> Logicast brought to you from the sheds of Great Britain. Where is your shed today, John? Cornwall, just about. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I'm in the same shed as usual, so uh, no, no interesting shed facts from from me. Um, so uh, yeah, we've got a number of articles that we're going to talk about this week um, from uh, from last week's AWS news. Um, if you haven't heard the podcast before, uh, you may know that you may or may not know uh, that each week I produce a curated list of AWS news in a weekly AWS news roundup newsletter, uh, and in the Logicast podcast. John and I select a number of those articles that we just want to talk about in a little bit more detail. So the first of those articles this week is again from The Register. We seem to be uh, liking The Register. I think last the last episode we had two or three articles from The Register. But uh, yeah, we've got another article from The Register today. Um, it's actually a sponsored feature, this one, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Um, all about the, um, the, the recent launch of the Amazon Neptune serverless graph database um, so Neptune itself is not new uh, the Neptune graph database has been around for a little while in AWS um, but uh, last week um, there were a lot of headlines that we spotted about the new serverless version of Neptune so John what, what can you tell me about Neptune and, and graph databases I think as always you know a lot more about this than I do um, I know virtually nothing other than what I've read uh, from this database so yeah what, what can you tell us John about graph databases yeah sure so Graph databases, they are a different type of non-relational database. Right? I call them non-relational. They're a NoSQL database. They have relations, but not in the way that um, a relational database traditionally does. There's two types. I'm significantly more familiar with one than the other. The two types are, and it does say this in the graph, but there's uh, property graphs and knowledge graphs. Property graphs are the ones that I'm familiar with and that most people on the planet will have actually had some data stored in because they used quite a lot for social media. I think Facebook is built on a um, property graph database because what they do is they store data in, in nodes, in, um, they, they call them nodes, it's just like an item, and uh, relationships between those nodes. So you have a person node per person as opposed to something like a person table and then you have um, information on relationships between those two those sort of person nodes so it's you have a John node and a Carl node and those two nodes are you know John works for Carl Carl knows John that kind of thing um, so that's that's the short version of uh, a graph database as you say Neptune has been around for a little while now 2017 2018 I think um, but it, it certainly isn't the first to the market there was another graph database provider that I'm aware of and I'm sure there's more um, but there's one called Neo4j which is I don't know what the J stands for I think it was originally Java based or something like that but um, so Neptune isn't kind of the only player in the market as you say Neptune has been around for a little while and up until this announcement it was much more kind of RDS adjacent if you like it worked in the same way that RDS did it had servers, it de dealt with the control plane, but you paid EC2 rates for the servers underneath it, 
and you kind of worked in that sort of way. You did auto scaling in the same way that you did RDS, you had endpoints in the same way that you had with RDS, and so on and so forth. With the serverless offering, what they've gone and done is they've made it work much more like a DynamoDB model, which sort of makes sense, right? Because that's AWS's primary serverless NoSQL database, and they've kind of modeled other no, uh, serverless databases, Aurora being the other one, on top of how that works. So you pay for what you're using as opposed to the servers that you've got and rather annoyingly they've come up with another way of, of confusing people taking an exam. So as you well know with DynamoDB you pay based on read and write capacity units. With Aurora you pay I think Aurora capacity units with Neptune, you now pay Neptune capacity units. So that's just another thing you're going to have to do the maths on in the exam, which is just great. The article does go on to talk about how um, this is also used not just for social media, but for security and fraud detection and stuff. Because again, unpredictable loads, which, you know, when you need to scan something when you need to scan it, you don't know in advance when you need to do that potentially. And you pick up fraud and things based on strange relationships between pieces of information, between data. And that's exactly what these graphs are great for. Yeah, graphs, databases, that's exactly what they're great for because that's what they're storing. Um, and yeah, as you say, this is a featured article but I thought it was worth just bringing up because there was a lot of noise about this one. They are growing in popularity, hence the amount of noise, I think. Um, so yeah, this is just another option um, and potentially it's it's probably the cheapest way of getting going with a graph database. It's also worth knowing that AWS seems to be quite committed to Neptune as a service because since 2017 or 18 whenever it was released they have added a number of things to it. The most interesting being the support for open cipher query language which if you're familiar with something like a SQL query language will feel quite familiar, much more so than the language it launched with, which is Gremlin, which I've never really used and never really wanted to. But um, Cypher looks and feels like SQL, right? So when you've got Cypher support, when you've got serverless support, all of a sudden this graph database becomes very, very approachable to people. So yeah, I thought it was worth a look. And can I just say Tinkerpop? Simply because I want to test the pop filter on my microphone, um, and uh, it's just one of those things. Tinker pop doesn't seem to belong in a, in an IT conversation, really, does it? But uh, it's in this article, um, and uh, yeah, I just I just wanted to say Tinker pop, and uh, hopefully that's coming through loud and clear over my mic. Another um, another bit of waffle, as is my tendency. If you listen to the last episode, you'll know that. Uh, uh, I'm the waffle. No, no, you're the waffle. I'm the cheese. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's what, I've got it the wrong way around. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to move away from the. This could be a bit cheesy. Definitely a little bit of waffle. But you mentioned Neo4j there, um, so I'm going to go off on a complete tangent. I was walking out South End Pier last weekend with a friend, and uh, somebody called my name, and uh, it was a guy called Johnny James that used to work at CloudReach, who now works for Neo4j. Um, told you I was going to go off on a tangent, completely <laughs> random. Um, do you remember Johnny James from, from your CloudReach days? Oh, vaguely, yeah, vaguely. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it, it was, uh, he was pushing a, uh, a pushchair along um, South End Pier, the world's longest pleasure pier at 1.3 miles. 
and uh, uh, I was waving at the child in the pushchair who waved back at me and then the guy pushing the pushchair called my name <laughs> so uh, yeah there we go completely not not completely random because he now works for Neo 4J um, but uh, not really a great deal to do with graph databases is it he so, could have called you uh, something I, other than your name so you got away lightly I think he could he could have done uh, although I don't think we knew each other that well but uh, I'm just glad he remembered my name um, which is uh, which is nice so uh, anyway I think that's uh, that's enough about graph databases for now um, let, let's move on to the next article um, so this one um, from uh, Renato Lozio on InfoQ um, is about um, AWS introducing AWS parameters and secrets lambda extension to improve performances and security so uh, my understanding of this at a high level is a new way to retrieve secrets um, for, for lambda functions without having to go into secrets manager um, so uh, you can either confirm or deny my understanding and perhaps uh, perhaps elaborate a bit on that John well yeah you're not wrong um, it is a new way of retrieving parameters from SSM parameter store and secrets from secrets manager without having to go all the way out to the services now as the article says and this article towards the end also just has a lot of links out to Twitter feeds and things as well because that just seems to be how they've done this as the article says traditionally the way you pull in things from SSM parameter store or from secrets manager is you initialize BOT03, this is in Python language, right, but you initialize the, the SDK or part of the SDK, you load up the relevant thing to say oh, I want this kind of bit and then you go off and you get it and you pull it back in and then you've got to filter out all the other bits that aren't the value that you don't want, so things like, you know, how many um, API calls were needed and how long it's been stored there and when it was updated and all that jazz when 99% of the time when you're pulling it in a lambda you actually only want the value so that it was kind of faffy and then on top of that secrets manager has a um, charge for using the API and whilst SSM doesn't have a charge for using the API there are limits that you need to worry about and if you're working in lambda scale you can start to hit the ceilings of those without really trying too hard yes okay you can turn on advanced concurrency and then you're paying rather than hitting ceilings but you know neither is amazing what this is doing is via the use of a lambda layer and I'll touch on why that's not amazing in a minute it's loading in a cache for both secrets manager and SSM parameter store and then allowing you to as a developer it's allowing you to talk to that cache via an HTTP get request to just pull down the thing that you want you don't have to load up the SDK you don't have to talk out to the service it's just kind of there so as the article says this is a cost and latency reduction me uh, measure because you're not going out to the service so you're not paying the API costs and you're not going out to the service you're kind of it's a bit hard to comprehend this but even within the data center there you are constrained by the speed of light yeah so your requests because they're not going any further than kind of where the lambda's running because it's a local cache it's faster because it's not going off to where this other store uh, service is stored and then coming back again you're talking microseconds of latency but it's there if you do this enough and you do this at high enough scale that does start to become a problem so it does make it faster it's like I say it's loaded in via a lambda layer and that's the only real issue I take with this I understand why they've done that so layers if you're not familiar is a way of importing external code or external dependencies into your lambda runtime environment yeah typically 
I've got a lot of experience of doing this with Python and what we do is you'd put your Python pip dependencies in a layer and then load that layer in so you're not gumming up your runtime environment you're not gumming up your deployments and all that jazz with pip dependencies because they can get quite messy and unruly and you just kind of want to keep them away on their own putting this in a layer is kind of the obvious way to make it available to lambdas that want it and not have other lambdas that don't need it have access to it because it's a, excuse me because at the end of the day that's a security risk because it's an unauthenticated get request but putting it as a as a layer does mean because layers are limited you can only attach five of them to any one lambda and there's a size limit as well when this is unrolled 250 meg or something like that so if you've got a large number of other layers already attached you might not be able to use this because you've hit a limit be it in count or size so that's kind of the biggest issue I take with this but on the whole it is a fantastic service change because it, it's a cost reduction it's a speed improvement the article does also have um, a few annoyances around the fact that it's an HTTP local server cache which okay yeah they sort of cop to say that it makes sense so it's supported across runtimes but having a language specific AWSified call would have potentially been nicer to work with because get requests can get messy but yeah on the whole absolutely great absolutely love this want to see more of this sort of thing so I guess the big question is will you be using it we've just uh, we're about to embark upon a uh, serverless project of one of our clients will you be using it absolutely 100% cool thanks for that insight John so let's move on to the next article um, which is um, from the AWS database blog um, it's about demystifying Amazon RDS backup storage costs um, you know one of the trickiest things about using RDS can be figuring out uh, all of the little hidden costs um, obviously there is a, uh, a free online cost calculator that you can use um, but uh, you need to be AWS certified really to understand what all the various input parameters are um, and uh, you know it's asking you to often estimate things that you wouldn't have a clue uh, <laughs> about from your 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 own environment but uh, we've got an article here that does attempt to demystify uh, backup storage costs for RDS um, so um, can you demystify it any further John having read the article so this is an area of AWS that I'm quite weirdly passionate about. Um, I did go off on one a couple of episodes ago about this as well. Um, so it's good that they're talking about it because I really think they should make more of this. The article is pretty good. It's a little bit dry, but it's quite detailed. The areas that it sort of starts to talk about is, you know, the variables, as you say, that affect cost of backup retention. And that's the size of the database the workload patterns, how long you're keeping your backups for, how often you're initiating manual snapshots because they're not automatically kind of purged for you, and then anything else that's going on in that region in your RDS environment. In terms of each of those areas, the database storage size you get, say you have a one terabyte, I think they use a tibibyte as an, as an example in here, but potato potato so you have a one terabyte database you get one terabyte of backups as well for free which is great what that functionally means is in a production environment you get your first backup it doesn't cost anything brilliant lovely love that 
and of course if you're running say dev and production in the same space and you turn off the dev backups because you don't necessarily need them you could if they're equivalent sizes have two production full backups for free which is wonderful as that's that's nice it's not amazing but it's nice and then they talk about retention period because automated retention, uh, automated backups have retentions of between don't take them and 35 days. And obviously, you pay for the number of them that you're having. Right? So, if you're keeping them for seven days, you get the first one for free and then you've got to pay for the next six. Cool. Talks about the frequency of manual snapshots because you pay for the storage, but they're not automatically deleted, they're not rotated out for you. So, you've got to take account of that. And then it talks about you know other things in the region which I've touched on and backup policies and all that sort of thing. It then runs through some nice scenarios and then it gets into some graphs and things. But I'm going to focus on scenario number two from their article and just sort of talk through that. So in this they have a 1000 gigabyte uh, database with 700 gig taken up and a daily change in the data of 50 gig. So can I just interrupt you there, John, for a moment? Sure. Because it, can, can you clarify for me and anyone else listening the difference between mebibytes and megabytes and gibibytes and gigabytes? Because it seems there's a trend now towards uh, using more of the the, uh, the mebibyte unit. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm not 100% certain of the difference. So what what is the difference? So traditionally, a gigabyte is 1024 megabytes yeah a gibibyte is 1000 mibibytes which is 1000 kibibytes so the ibi as opposed to the igur if you like is around 1000 and the mega giga peta whatever uh, bytes is a binary expansion in 1024 so it's just case. thank you yeah. thank you for clarifying and sorry for interrupting carry on with your scenario but uh, yeah i just wanted to know that for my own uh, my own personal benefit really fair enough um so yeah in this i'm just going to say gig because it's easier they've got a thousand gig provisioned and it's using 700 gig and changing 50 gig a day yeah you get the first thousand for nothing which is great because you're already paying for the database storage so you're already paying for that externally and in your backup land you're not paying for another thousand for the first thousand, right? So you you have the first seven hundred gig that's covered in the free tier and a daily change of fifty gig. So every day your seven hundred gig has fifty gigabytes worth of change. Yeah, that means you are paying seven hundred plus seven times fifty, which I'm not doing the maths on the top off the top of my head. I think it's a thousand and fifty. So they take away that initial thousand and you're paying fifty gig a month. Bosh, done. You're really not actually paying very much for this because it's something like one cent per gigabyte per month or gibibyte per month. So it's it's quite cheap. And that scenario two really, I think, for me, sums up how backups are kind of designed to work, how they're meant to work and how they recommend they work because it's automated, it's got seven days worth of retention and I'm, I know there's probably recommendations for it being longer than that but it's automated, seven days worth of retention, it rolls out and you're actually not paying very much there because all you're paying for is kind of the rate of change. Got it. 
there are other scenarios in here as well and then they've got simulations and things which I'm not going to go into because you know the, the article does it better than I can because there's nice sort of cloud watch graphs and bits and pieces um, but yeah it's it's well worth a read this one but you will want a cup of coffee got it and uh, we will be including the links to the articles in the show notes so if you want to actually read uh, through the other scenarios take a look at the pretty graphs etc then uh, I encourage you to take a look at the show notes um, and you can uh, you can link out and, and have a read um, so on to the next one then another AWS blog post um, this time it's from the AWS cloud operations and migrations blog um, and the title of this post is monitoring the availability and health of on-premises application using AWS CloudWatch synthetics um, so obviously AWS are moving more and more into the observability space now um, not just for um, AWS services themselves uh, but also for services um, operating outside of AWS um, some might argue they're eating uh, some of their, um, their customers and partners lunch uh, with this uh, but that's uh, often the way that these things tend to evolve um, so uh, certainly CloudWatch uh, is able to do a lot more now uh, than it was uh, a few years ago um, so um, yeah what's uh, what's CloudWatch synthetics John what can you tell me about that before you do I just uh, one thing that I noticed about this article um, and it's uh, I think it's just my OCD it's something that I pointed out with one of your diagrams recently it's using some of the older generation um, service icons which I'm very surprised to see that on the AWS blog itself I would have thought they would have had an editor with eyes as eagle-eyed as mine um, who would uh, be spotting these things and, uh, and and editing them out but not just particularly relevant but uh, I just wanted to point that out <laughs> I think that's uh, an artifact of Amazon's um, org structure. Lots of two pizza teams that don't talk to each other. I think that's what has yeah. done that. Um, right. So, as you say, this is this is a very detailed blog on a very specific area for synthetic monitoring. I'll touch on synthetics first, and then I'll go through the article. As you say, this is a little bit lunch eaty for some of their partners. So traditionally for synthetics monitoring and a synthetic monitor is is the site available can I hit this page do I get a 200 response that sort of thing making sure that the site's up and available for your customers but it's called synthetic because you don't have a person doing it it's a service doing it traditionally you'd go to New Relic or Neo or, or um, Datadog or, or one of those sorts of people for APM monitoring and synthetics and canaries is covered in their APM so yeah this is a little bit lunch eaty for those sorts of people but it's still early days and, and the offerings in the marketplace are quite mature compared to CloudWatch. CloudWatch synthetics work in the same way that a normal canary synthetic would do. Right? It, it's a configurable script that in this case I think actually runs in Lambda which is great because then you can just go and edit it yourself happy days and it hits endpoints this particular solution is telling you how to do it with an on-premises hosted application so that you don't have to go off to someone like Datadog specifically who are then treating it like any other application excuse me any other application and just kind of spamming an endpoint you have private connectivity from your AWS VPC back to your on-premises so that you're not clogging up public routes if that makes sense um, it's a fairly complicated setup, but it's a relatively simple diagram. So you create the synthetics, that goes off and sort of spins up the lambdas for you, you don't have to worry about that, but if you want to customise them, you can. 
you have private connectivity back to your on-prem setup and if your DNS is hosted on-prem as well then it tells you you know to use root 53 resolver to sort of send forwards because lambdas have to have a DNS in the VPC if they're in the VPC and it sort of runs that and sends the results back to CloudWatch metrics and, and S3 buckets and that sort of thing and then you can alert based on that but yeah it goes through um, setting up a, what's called a heartbeat canary right and a heartbeat canary is, is literally just calling out to a service every so often to say are you there are you there and making sure that it's still kind of up and running it goes into massive detail on how to do that and VPC settings and making the canary and then if you need the hybrid DNS for Route 53 Resolver which is actually really useful because uh, the documentation on Route 53 Resolver itself is not amazing I don't think um, so this is reasonable um, and it's nice that it shows you how to do that and then it shows you how to um, look at your run metrics. It's important to note that whilst this blog post talks about doing it specifically for on-prem applications you can do it for AWS hosted applications as well um, which I suppose is sort of more common but yeah just a nice article showing you that you can still use AWS to do these sorts of things for probably cheaper than New Relic or Datadog or other APM people are available um, even if you're not hosting your application in AWS so yeah nice little good one there cool thanks for that and uh, yeah, I hope the authors don't mind me pointing out the uh, the use of the incorrect icons. Um, be interesting to see uh, if they do actually get updated. I have to tag him in the post. <laughs> <laughs> so um, back to the register again um, for our final article of this week. Um, this one um, is about uh, AWS buying over 100 diesel generators um, for Irish data centers. Um, which I think I mentioned in my uh, my weekly news roundup video um, does seem a little at odds with some of the sustainability agenda um, that uh, is being so heavily pushed by all the, all the vendors at the moment. Um, but um, yeah, Amazon has applied to have 105 diesel generators installed um, at a new data center site in Dublin. Um, so um, yeah, what what can you tell me about this, John? So yeah, you're not wrong. This is a little bit at odds, spinning up a whole bunch of, of dirty diesel burning generators to run your data center is somewhat at odds with you know going green and, and renewable power and all that jazz. In this specific case as listeners viewers in the UK and Europe will know we are probably going into a fairly uncomfortable winter with fuel availability you know, for ongoing reasons. This specific one this article talks about um, the fact that Ireland is very very data center heavy yeah there's a lot of them in Ireland AWS has a region there which has at least three data centers probably more than that because it's three AZ and each AZ is at least one data center but probably more I think Google Cloud might have a region there I know Azure does uh, it's very heavy on the data center in Ireland to the extent that power consumed by data centers in Ireland uses more power than all of the rural homes in Ireland. That's just, what? That's mad. You're spending more money on power to run server farms than you are keeping people that don't live in cities connected to the grid. That's, wow. But okay, cool. That's sort of the crux of this article because of the sheer amount of power these data centers are using 
one of the things that their regulator in Ireland has um, has required is they are giving priority to applications where, and I'm reading verbatim here, where the data center has the ability to reduce its electricity demand typically by using its own generators or storage capacities. So that's what this is. It's a licensing thing from Amazon's perspective, I would suspect. They're more likely to be able to get the licenses for more data centers if, when required, they can reduce their grid power requirements. So in this case, it's by spinning up a bunch of diesel generators. Happy days, they don't need Irish power, they've got their own. The other obvious options being things like, um, you know, Tesla's Giga batteries or whatever they're called. Other battery suppliers are available. But, uh, you know, big, big storage batteries where you pull in power and charge them overnight when it's not really being needed by the grid. And then you kind of kind of use it in the day if you need to. That's sort of the other option. The article does link out to another LREG article, which I won't go into massively, saying that this isn't just Ireland that's having these sorts of concerns. UK government's had um, conversations, National Grid has had conversations, um, and that data centres generally do have backup power solutions, typically by diesel-powered generators, but diesel's expensive, diesel's dirty, and the auto switchovers onto these generators are not great either. So yeah this is as you say this is very at odds with the green agenda if you like but it's i think something of a necessary evil if we want to keep using our hyper-connected services yeah i mean i guess there's a strong possibility that uh these these diesel generators will never be fired up but it's going to be interesting to see what happens over this winter with fuel shortages and that kind of thing um it could be uh the, the best um disaster recovery test that uh the entire global internet infrastructure has ever seen if uh, if we're all running out of power and uh, you know there is talk of these enforced uh, three hour um, power outages in the UK over the winter um, so it's going to be interesting to see how all these facilities actually handle this as you say whether the switching gear can gracefully um, switch over to the, um, the, the the diesel backup generators which is something that they are supposed to test on a regular basis whether they actually do or not, I guess we'll find out. Um, but uh, of course, the other thing then is if they are running on diesel, can they actually get any diesel <laughs> or enough diesel to, to keep the things running? Um, you know, if they have to run on diesel for any extended period of time, uh, of course, the diesel will start to run out. It will need to be replenished. Um, and the article does talk about, um, you know, the, 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 the fact that the stocks of diesel have been quite volatile recently, which is why uh, we see the pump prices going up and down like a yo-yo. Um, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see with that additional demand um, on, on the diesel, how well the industry is going to going to cope with that. So, uh, yeah, interesting times with uh, with all this power generation and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I guess, though, if, uh, you know, whether or not the data centers need to stay up if we're all suffering power outages, which are likely to affect um, our homes and the mobile networks and so on and so forth. Um, if all the websites are up but nobody can access them, does it really matter? Um, so uh, we're going to have to wait and see. My wife was trying to send me out to buy firewood yesterday because she's hugely concerned about uh, <laughs> the energy crisis. And uh, I think she read an article that the UK only had something like nine days worth of gas left in storage um, over the weekend. So, um, yeah, certainly interesting times that we're heading into over this winter. So I think that brings us to the end of our time really today, John. So uh, thank you very much for those insights. 
Um, we will be back uh, next time, but uh, this brings us to the end of uh, episode four of Logicast. Um, so uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via uh, all major podcast distribution channels. Uh, we'll leave it there and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>